We spoke a little bit the first evening about uh, refuge. And we've been chanting the refuges in the morning. And then also in the evenings, we've been chanting both the sharing of blessings and the reflections on metta. Various um, variations on the kind of fundamental wish may all beings be happy. Sabbe satta sukita hontu. It's translated here as joyful, but sukha, sukha translates. Actually, it equally translates, sukha translates equally as happy and as tranquil. Sukha means happiness and tranquility. So that fundamental wish, sabbe sata sukita hontu, may all beings be happy, similarly may all beings be tranquil, all beings be peaceful. It's, of course, it's a beautiful sentiment. Right? May all beings be peaceful. One sees it written very often on kind of Buddhist literature, or prayer flags, or blessing um, wheels, or various other things. That sentiment of metta, well-wishing, kind of recognizing something about the solid, our solidarity as human beings. Recognizing that actually it doesn't really make sense to make up exclusions around that happiness. That actually, if we really, if we really interested in happiness, the kind of the natural interest in happiness is to wish for everybody, to wish for all beings to be happy. It's interesting and it's. It's kind of unusual sentiment, right, within Buddhism, this kind of immediate sense of taking in all beings. What we normally understand as religious traditions often are more interested in the faithful, you know, the, the believers, our lot. Never mind all beings, most beings are infidels, right, the... Most beings are wrong. Most beings believe in the wrong kind of God or they're living the wrong kind of life or they're doing the wrong kinds of rituals. Our lot. We're all right. We're going to heaven or wherever. As one friend said, he learned from his, religious up, his Christian religious upbringing in Texas. He learned that, he said that God loves me so much and if I do one thing wrong, I'm going straight to hell. Forever. <laughs> it's a kind of, it's sort of hard to make sense of that. The other thing he said, he said he learned two things. The other thing he said he learned was that sex was the most awful, dirty, shameful thing, and you should save it for someone you really love. So that sense of well-wishing, I think there's two things. If we sort of just deconstruct a little bit that, that wishing for happiness, there's two things in it, right? One is the, well, three things. One is the all-encompassingness, right? The sense of that, that really spreading out to include everyone, everything, all beings. That reflects this sense of interbeing 
with all of life, solidarity with all of life, non-separation of my happiness from your happiness, from their happiness. And the kind of you know, there's certain deep current to that. It's the is invitational quality, of drawing us into recog- really recognizing, not as an idea, but really feeling our solidarity with all of life, our inclusion in all of life. And then there's the um, the wishing part. I, I, I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. May you be happy. Us to be happy, them to be happy, all to be happy. And interestingly, even though the wishing is going in all directions, inwards and outwards, wishing for happiness, there's actually we start and when we orientate in that direction, we start to recognize the happiness, the pleasure, the goodness, the lightness of spirit, the love, the, the delight right, of the wishing. It's, it's, it's uh, to feel uh, kindly disposed is a beautiful thing. To feel generously uh, orientated. To have that warmth of heart, that generosity to, of spirit to others actually brings us happiness. Right? Feeling warm towards others is a happy state. It's like when Buddha talks about dana. And sometimes when I, I go to dana, dharma centers, or I listen to dana talks, sometimes I think, oh my God. You know, I mean, Buddha talks about dana as a foundation for happiness. First thing, before, the, before observing kind of uh, various practices, the foundation, uh, he speaks about um, dana sila panya, right? And the foundation of establishing a generous heart. Why is that the foundation? He says because it's a, it's a, it's a condition for ha- of happiness. It's a happy condition to feel generous. Of course, we know that, right? We know when we, when we act or orientate in a way that's generous, that's kind, that's supporting others. We feel the the need of another, and we're able to respond to it. We see the struggle of another and we, we wish them well. It's beautiful. And if you've, if you've been around, particularly in Asian monasteries and all, right, you feel the, the, the delight, the joy, the, the observance days, the offering days, the days when lay people come to offer robes to the monastics or the moment of the day offering food to the monastics. It's like the happiest time of day. It's interesting, people that come to a lot of lay retreats, often there's a certain fear of the monasteries, fear that the monasteries are going to be kind of austere place with monastics, kind of grim-faced monastics. Kind of. Actually, when you go to the monasteries, especially if you go at the weekends, it's, a lot of, it's very joyful. It's because some of the Theravada monasteries, Chris and I met by chance a few months ago or last year or sometime. Chris was there with his son, I think, was it? For a, a week. And I arrived on the Sunday partly to visit Ajahn Amaro, the abbot of the, the monastery, and partly because I wanted to see their Dharma Hall to get some inspiration for the new building they're making. And I arrived uh, on a Sunday and uh, 
a lot of kids outside playing frisbee on the lawn, others playing football, families having picnics. It's like oh, a lot of ha happiness. It's like a moment where people, a lot of people are kind of culturally Buddhist there, right? people from Thailand, Sri Lanka. And it's like, what, what happy thing shall we do at the weekend? Go to the monastery, offer food to the monastics, get the blessings of the place, hear the chanting, play cricket on the, fi on the fields. It's a kind of environment of feeling the goodness of, of sharing and exchange, a kind of, you know, the monastics offering kind of support and teachings and listening and advice and, and then the, the, the lay people offering food and... Uh, Requisites and etc. Beautiful. Sometimes, where was it in the near to London in the in England? It's a the main monastery is called Amaravati. Just Amaravati means the deathless realm in the, just uh, north of London. And then sometimes, you know, as I say, we hear, the times we often hear about dana is at the end of a retreat where we say, well, please, <laughs> give us some money. And of course, that's an important part of things as well. But it's really a shame if, if the, the breadth and depth of, of dana gets reduced to the idea that dana is a thing where we give some money at the end of a retreat. It's way broader than that. Dana is that movement of generosity, that orientation of generosity, that recognition of the importance of a generous heart as a foundation for happiness. Connecting with happiness. And as I say, you see that in mo the monasteries often, the happiness of contributing. Sometimes when I give the Dana talk at the end of a retreat, and I say, oh, try to support you and please support us, and the Dana boxes are there. And sense of joy and delight doesn't seem to be the prevalent thing in the room. Sometimes it's like, oh, we've been talking about wisdom and compassion and now we're talking about money. And so I often try to emphasize, you know, whatever, whatever amount people want to offer, can offer, are happy to offer, that one actually makes a connection in the moment of that offering with you know, the goodness of it. You're offering support. You're offering support to something you care about. Offering to support to someone you're appreciative of, and to actually make that connection, so that there can be a delight in it, a happiness in it, a joy in it. And so, that orientation: may all beings be happy. To recognize that we we find a lightness of spirit in our capacity to wish happiness for others. And then another aspect that's there in the well-wishing is kind of the futility of it, right? or the, not futility, the impossibility of it. It's impossible that all beings be happy. Right? It's impossible. You imagine, you can wish and wish and wish as much as you like. You run around the world trying to make everyone happy. Right? It's impossible that all beings, all beings, be happy and peaceful all at once. So there's a kind of paradox in the way we're offering, caring, wishing, and acknowledging, you know, it's a bit like with the Bodhisattva vows, right? Same thing. Living beings are, you know, are numberless. I vow to 
row them all to the further shore. The poisons are numberless. I vow to purify them all. Teachings, you know, numberless. I vow to understand them all. Blessings, numberless. I vow to bow my heart to them all. The road is endless. I vow to walk it to the very end. I find that, that the paradox of that very inspiring. Because if you only have one side or the other, you get into difficulties, right? If you just have, oh, living beings are endless, poisons are endless, teachings are endless, it's all endless. It's kind of, you know, I'll never get there. I might as well collapse here. And yet if you only have the other side, right, I've got to save all beings, Purify all the, t- all the poisons, uh, understand all the teachings, you know, and get right to the end of the path. I, you know, I better get a whiz on. <laughs> so on the first, if you only have the first part of the equation, it, kind of tends, to, it tends to collapse or hopelessness or discouragement. If you only have the second part of the equation, it, turns to, it tends to kind of stress, uh, striving, kind of, you know, burnout, exhaustion. And, and so we put that, that paradox together. There's a sense, oh, beings are numberless. It's infinite life. And yet, the vow to save them all, it's like, okay, so how can I meet this? This, and this, and this, and this, and this, infinitely, infinitely. This being, how can I meet this being? This poison, you know, obscuration, difficulty, challenge. This teaching, this blessing. This step on the path. And so, inhabiting paradox in that way is the middle way between kind of hopelessness and collapse, being too loose, too floppy, too hopeless. On the other hand, being too too tight, too committed, too engaged, too, 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 uh, too tight, working too hard. It's the same in our practice, right? Feeling always for that way, not being not too tight, not too loose. Too tight, trying to force our attention to be here. And like we said, you can't be present as an act of force. One's present by relaxing into being here. And yet, not too loose. Not just relaxing, just like, uh, and then going kind of uh, dull, spacing out. So paradox is a really helpful way of inhabiting the middle ground of our practice. And same with this wish then, wishing happiness, wishing happiness and recognizing that unhappiness is built in to my life, to your life, to everyone's life, to Buddha's life. Things, you know, the unwelcome and the unwished for happen inevitably. It kind of reminds us of the central concern, how central happiness is. I mean, want to be happy. That's where that's where that wishing comes from. Because we see, our oh, people want to be happy. We see, oh, I want to be happy. I really want to be happy. It's actually important that we want to be happy. It's beautiful that we want to be happy. And it's also worth seeing. What do I do with the wish to be happy? 
it can easily the wish to be happy itself is actually has a certain uplift to it, an inspiring quality to it, a self-respect actually. Honoring one's experience, honoring one's life. Hey, here I am. I didn't organize this. I don't remember asking for this. I didn't choose this. But here I am. These kind of human faculties and human possibility. What do I do? Oh, I want to be happy. Okay, what's going to make me happy? Some of you have explored that with me when we've done relational exercises, right? That question, what do I really want? And the, the layers and layers and layers that can come out of that question. What do I really want? What's going to make me happy? And for most of us, we don't really explore that question. We just do it's more Pavlovian, right? It's more uh, reactive. And we, by default, what our kind of you know, primitive mindset will do Right? Our kind of uh, you know, the evolu- evolutionary programmed, evolutionarily programmed to survive, right? to procreate, and to dominate or succeed or kind of you know, kind of incre- increase ourselves in various ways, and that ends up being you know, the 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 survival drive and the sex drive and the social drive. And that being where we go to try and get happiness, a kind of consumptive happiness. And of course, a retreat's an interesting environment because it um, doesn't give us very many consumptive opportunities. Lunch, basically, is the, you know, and dinner and breakfast and supper. You know. But it offers, has this invitational quality, it offers this you know, rare thing, especially in a world as, as ours, which is, you know, where advertising and marketing and, and, you know, there's so many pulls on our attention saying, hey, hey, buy this to be happy, do this to be happy, get this to be happy, have it look like this to be happy, etc., etc. So it's quite a privilege, but can be quite confronting to voluntarily put ourselves in a, in a situation where we kind of, we really quieten down or leave alone or withdraw from that f- sort of consumptive habit of happiness. And of course, we still find it showing up in various ways, right? Oh, yeah. Looking around for how I can latch on to something that will make me happy. You know, whether it's where I sit in the hall or you know, getting the right amount of cushions to be comfortable or whatever it is. And of course, it doesn't work. Right? Latch on to various things, but so many factors are out of our control, it's impossible to make ourselves happy in that consumptive way. Moments of it. Moments you might bathe in the river after lunch. Oh, pleasant, pleasant, lovely, happy. Beautiful. I mean, you know, just to enjoy, to take in those moments of pleasure when they're available. Very important to drink in you know, the pleasure of you know, the physical pleasure of cool water on a warm day, or the pleasure of beauty, pleasure of uh, in whatever way it might arise. And to notice the difference between drinking in pleasure, a happy moment. 
and then leaning beyond that to kind of a kind of hungry hunger for pleasure, trying to get happy, make happiness happen. And like I say, there's not many places to find it on retreat. I saw so few of you reading books earlier in the afternoon. There's nothing in those books. <laughs> there's no happiness to be found in those books. You can, page after page, page after page, nothing, nothing. <laughs> I don't mean to be dismissive of books, of course. You know, useful, you know, useful and can be a great source of inspiration, but I have no faith in reading books on retreat. Nothing you're looking for is going to be found in those books. I really encourage you to put them away. There's plenty of input in being together and on reflections that I'm offering, and most especially in just meeting and digesting your own material. And maybe there's something you burning to know, and you think there are references in that book, and you're going to that book. In which case, if it's. If it's be discerning. If it's really useful, it's really helpful to dip in a little bit to a book and read, I don't know, maximum a page or two. <laughs> maximum, okay. Otherwise, I would suggest there's just a hung, hungry hunger for maybe the happiness, the happiness of distraction, the happiness of consumption, consuming words on a page, right? just because there's nothing else to consume here. Netflix is not an option. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes it's like we can have a kind of, you know, happiness withdrawal in retreat in different ways, just because the options for, for kind of getting a little pleasure hit just aren't there so much. And yet, you know, there's different options for that. I remember speaking with, uh, with Ajahn Suchito once about, you know, so Ajahn Suchito must be a monk about 45 years probably now. And never mind just being on retreat, right? This is, you know, monastic life, 227 c constraints in the Vinaya. Right? 227 don't do that, basically. So no eating after midday, for example. Um, no listening to music, for example. No dancing, for example. Right. <laughs> and you know, there's a, so there's a, that could sound rather, you know, austere, rather dry, rather bereft of happiness, rather bereft of pleasure. And in the conversation we were having, we were speaking about the importance, actually, the importance of meditative pleasure. How sustaining that, that is. How, you know, if one doesn't really access meditative pleasure as a monastic, you know, with those kind of constraints, you know, it's, it's going to be dry. And I've certainly, and maybe you have, you know, I've hung out with monastics who haven't had enough meditative pleasure <laughs> in their lives. And they often end up by disrobing, leaving. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be monastics, actually. People that just don't know how to enjoy, don't know how to take in pleasure, don't know how to, you know, uh, access, to make good use of pleasure so that it actually can make us happy. 
And if you don't know how to extract happiness from pleasure, then either the pleasure becomes just a very kind of hollow seeking, you know, that image of the hungry ghost in Buddhist uh, iconography. These hu hungry ghosts are these figures with huge bellies and tiny mouths. Never fill their belly enough. They can never get enough. If we don't, if we don't find out how to let pleasure really feed us, we end up in that kind of desperate, you know, a kind of hollow acquisitiveness. Whatever it is that we try to get it through, you know, food, or money, or just things, or experiences, or status, power over others, etc., etc. The various kind of corruptions of that. Or, if it's not that, then people can become quite hard, dry, bitter, cynical. All those things, I can see the kind of the roots in cynicism and a certain kind of um, harsh scepticism or bitterness about life. In the, the lack of capacity to, to, you know, to nourish the heart. Lack of capacity to extract happiness from moments of pleasure that are you know, always there. As our practice deepens, we can start to find real meditative pleasure. The pleasure of refinement. Pleasure of a quietening mind. The pleasure, particularly, as we've been speaking about, this kind of knowing you know, the breathing and then knowing the whole body breathing. The pleasure, actually, of what the body field lightening and um, um, sort of undoing some of the energetic sort of hot places, dense places. The you know, body often feels quite an uncomfortable place to be. Uh, when we start practicing, or maybe in the first days of a retreat, or maybe ongoingly for some time. But as we learn to progressively relax into our experience, those free up. And we find that the essential experience of being in a body, more, more primarily than if the body is comfortable or not, more primarily than if it's the temperature is right, or the posture is right, or the, the, the actual sensations are, are comfortable or uncomfortable, more primarily than that, it's like, oh, it feels good to be in a body. Body likes being alive. Body most fundamentally is a source of the pleasure of aliveness. Various discomforts notwithstanding. Minor discomforts, but also, you know, major discomforts. Illness, injury, chronic or, or acute conditions that can be, you know, not to underestimate how uncomfortable and how challenging they can be. And yet, even in the presence of great challenge, physical or, or otherwise, the sense that we start to have touch into a, a groundswell of pleasure, meditative happiness. And then and those those states actually of a great deal of meditative happiness of bliss as the body field um, smooths out and becomes more free flowing 
energetically. As, it, as the body field feels lighter and more spacious. As mind quietens down, and allowing and, and breath calms, there's a na- the natural uh, outflow of that is is uh, a great happiness, bliss, rapture, piti, piti in Pali, piti most tr- translates as rapture, a kind of a kind of almost orgasmic sense of oh oh. Oh, the pleasure, the delight, the bliss of being here. Sounds good, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's good, but imagine an orgasm, right? It just went on and 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 on. Oh, sounds good. Sounds good too, right? For a little while. But after a while, kind of exhausting. And it's pity is like that, right? Rapture, meditative rapture, it's like that. I remember uh, in Thailand in the monastery having a lot of rapture, and it got to the point I couldn't really meditate anymore. As soon as I would cross my legs, I just everything would like my uh, the uh, the the kind of refinement, very strong, free flowing sensations, very blissful. It was so intense, it was like completely jangling my nervous system. I couldn't sleep anymore. I you know, imagine orgasm went on all night. <laughs> I couldn't do anything. And I went to see Ajahn Po, the abbot of the monastery. And I said, oh, Ajahn, I said, I've got a lot of pity. But I said, I, ca- I can't sit. I was going outside and sitting on the grass, which helped to cool it out a little bit more. And he looked at me very kindly, and he kind of shook his head, and he said, Mm, pity is not peaceful. <laughs> and then he, he, he helped me, gave me some instruction for the way pity can actually be cooled out into sukha. Sukha. Sukha, which means happiness, but, but also with that nuance of tranquility, like a, a, like a quiet happiness rather than the kind of bubbling, bubbling white water stream of rapture, the kind of cool, deep, gently flowing river of bodily life. Cool, peaceful, nourishing. And those those states can... um, can appear with, in such ways that they sustain over quite some time. Right? There may be a period of some minutes or some hours or some days of that kind of very unified or very blissful or very quiet, very kind of uh, uh, deeply precious, tranquil states. And they can also appear just as as with those factors in a in a uh, sometimes initially with less in less sustained forms but the factors the fact the, the quality of bliss may be there not not so well established not so long lasting but f- but able to feel oh this kind of the basic pleasure flow of body sitting still 
And when that's there, it's helpful to actually attune. We were speaking the other day about shifting the focus from the breath when it quietens down. It feels peaceful and calm and, ha- and it feels good to actually make the good feeling the object of your attention. To let the pleasure is a very suitable object for meditation. It's good news, right? And, to, to, and just attending in those moments where things feel uh, free, fluid, pleasurable, attending to the pleasure itself. And when, when you're attending to the pleasure, rather than just getting excited about the pleasure, right, it helps the pleasure to cool into tranquility. And so, you know, the, as we practice in you know, the sustained way, and the more sustained we are in our practice, the more we we kind of support the conditions for this kind of refinement, for actually for touching and tasting and being nourished by med- the happiness of meditation. Somebody once came to see the Buddha and said, "Well, I, you know." Again, looks austere, right? All the monastics in their patchy robes, you know, sitting around like this, face in repose. The face in repose doesn't look very happy. Sometimes people come to visit the Mulan, you know, people coming to, I don't know, fix the, the plumbing or to deliver something, or, they, and they, or we invite people for lunch, and they see people walking around, face in repose. Walking, queuing for lunch. Eating. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't look very happy. Or sometimes people on retreat, people come and see me and say, God, what am I doing in here? It's like some kind of, everybody looks so miserable. Right? We don't know. Some people definitely are miserable. Right? <laughs> At any given time, some proportion of you are going to be miserable. And some proportion of you are just going to be spaced out. And some proportion... You know, maybe walking out in just exquisite quality of refined, delighted, blissful uh, communion with life. It still looks like this. (laughs) Face in repose doesn't look blissful. We don't know what's happening. But you know, the more consistently we are with our practice, the more we open the, the, the possibility for that. So someone comes and sees the Buddha and says, we're only... No, is that, no, I've got the story wrong. I'm going to leave that story alone. <laughs> Mixing it up with another story when someone comes to see the Buddha and says, how come everybody looks so happy? Right? The, the monastics seem radiant and company I look radiant. I know this contradicts what I've just said about the face and repose, but I mixed up my stories. So the, why, how come you know, people are doing these austere practices? They're dressed in robes. They're only eating one, once a day. They spend their life sitting under trees. How come they look so happy? But I said, well, this is a practice of happiness. Like that, and conducing to the highest happiness. The happiness of, of peace. And I don't remember now which is the word in Pali that's used in that, in that text to, for, for, um, for peace. It's not sukha. But that sense of, so there's the kind of, you know, the, the, 
There's the reaching for pleasure or happiness, the consumptive reaching that we do. And then beyond that, there's just the, the, the genuine moments of, of uh, sensory pleasure that are available to us. That we can kind of drink in and make the most of and nourish ourselves with. And then there's this kind of refinement of experiential pleasure, meditative pleasure, the pleasure of uh, a concentrated mind, a unified mind, a, a fluid body field. And then there's... Um, a deeper pleasure, or we might say a more sustainable pleasure, right? That meditative pleasure, beautiful though it is, it's dependent on a certain refinement, right? Refinement actually that can come online quite a lot in, a, in an extended period of retreat. But it's, it's dependent on the conditions that allow for a unified mind and a deeply relaxed body, etc. Not all conditions allow for that. Then there's this other form of, of happiness that's really the happiness of knowing one's essential freeness of being. The happiness of knowing that one can't really be too disturbed by life, by the discomforts and inconveniences and problems and the fact that one's going to age and get sick and die, and not even necessarily in that order. Right. A certain happiness of basically being ready to die. And that's not to have any kind of death wish, right? Not to, not in a hurry to die, right? but kind of available, so available to life, available to this, to available to this pleasure, available to this blessing, available to this opportunity, but also available to. The snuffing out of all this that's surely coming for me. You know, and I don't know on what schedule. It's a little like, you know, those weighted toys? They were called weebles in England when I was a kid. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. That was the line on the TV advert. So they're like an egg shape and have a weight in the bottom and a face painted on them. And you, it doesn't matter how much you knock them around, they're basically unshakably liberated. <laughs> right? It's like their basic equilibrium, their basic well being is so fundamentally weighted in the, the ground of their being, right? <laughs> in the bottom of their egg. egg that, okay. No problem. Right? When the Buddha talks about the deepest happiness, it's the happiness of peace, he's talking about being a weeble, <laughs> a buddhic weeble. Right? That's the that's the really sustainable happiness that starts to suffuse our life. Right? A happiness that's actually really can open its arms to various misfortunes and di challenges and unwell, unwanted, unlooked-for, uncomfortable situations that inevitably come our way because that's what it's like to be alive. And knowing that there's a capacity to make room for, to, to let in, to manage, to respond skillfully, 
to meet misfortune without making drama out of it. And so like we've been saying, you know, we're cultivating different things as we practice together. On the one hand, we're cultivating this capacity for a kind of a depth of happiness. We're cultivating a presence that's able to make good use of moments of pleasure when they come along and drink them in. Bathe in the river. Enjoy the bamboo. Taste the lunch. And at the same time, we're conducing to this kind of meditative refinement of a, a kind of unified and spacious and relaxed body and mind that can give access to a certain real meditative pleasure and happiness. And at the same time, we're kind of studying our neuroses and fears and defenses and kind of histories and stories. And in the studying, we're discovering how to be in the midst of those things without contracting around them, without making a drama out of them, without them being the defining storyline of my life. And as we put those down, we find that actually we're more and more just able to be with what arises. And it may be that what arises, you know, does momentarily knock us off center momentarily causes some waves of concern or, um, or, or uh, uh, agitation or defensiveness or fear or anger. Right? And yet, increasingly, the capacity to know that it's okay to be like this. This is just a momentary condition. And to know that most fundamentally, the ground of practice wisdom, familiarity with oneself, simplicity, gentleness, generosity of spirit, is the, the, the ground of our ease, of our freeness, of our happiness, of our capacity that can be known more and more you know, until it's unshakable unshakable capacity to live fully and die freely. That's the promise and the possibility and the potency of our practice. May we all know an unshakable freeness of being. May all beings Oh, an unshakable freeness of being. So, please be diligent. Please be sincere. Please be consistent in your practice. And please enjoy, enjoy the, your good fortune at being here. And the opportunity of these days Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.